With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back, y'all. This is David, your friendly Good Bull Hunting basketball writer, and this is Season 2, Episode 3 of Aggie Hoops Weekly. We're here to talk about the opening week that was, the victory over Savannah State, the loss to UC Irvine, and boy, do we have thoughts about that loss to UC Irvine. And then we talked to our friend Peter Woodburn from Gonzaga's SB Nation site, The Slipper Still Fits. We're going to talk to him about Thursday night's game at number three, Gonzaga. Let's roll. Welcome back to Aggie Hoops Weekly. I'm Blake, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend David, and we're here to recap the week that was and the week that wasn't in Aggie basketball. David, your thoughts, sir? On one hand, it was good to have Aggie basketball back, right? We had a a big preview episode. We had an episode about the season recap. We had discussion about players leaving. So it's nice to actually shift the focus to actual real-life basketball. But those feelings changed whenever we completely crapped the bed in a one-point loss to UC Irvine. So we're one-and-one one on the young season. Expectations are tempered, and we will we will expand upon those feelings in the following 20 to 30 minutes. But, yeah, I really wish we could we could sit here, Blake, and talk about a 2-0 week and talk about how excited we are for the upcoming game against Gonzaga. But we can't do that. We're going to have to nitpick. We're going to have to get to the nitty-gritty of, of why we are 1-1 one and one on the young season. Yeah, this was definitely a rough week. It's certainly not the way you thought things would go for, for a season opening week. Things were okay against Savannah State, and you, you felt good about the momentum of the team, saw, thought we saw some really good things, and then UC Irvine took a turn for the worse. So without further ado, let's jump in and talk about the opener against Savannah State. Yeah, let's start with the good stuff, because... It was good stuff. It was a good, solid season opening victory against Savannah State. I should note that this was literally the perfect first opponent for our style. As we had discussed, we were switching from a big, heavy, forward-centric, slow-it-down, defense-control-the-pace style to a run-gun, guard-based, take-early-shots-shoot-a-lot-of-threes style. And if that's a transition you're trying to make, you will not find a more willing opponent than Savannah State. They lead the nation in pace. They lead the nation in quick shots i think in the amount of time that they don't take off the shot clock before their first shot and they lead the nation in threes attempted so in a way this was a perfect foil for this transition right and i assume that was not by accident i assume the ad lined this one up as a way to uh, to test the new the new way of playing basketball and it went about as you'd expect because we completely overmatched them we were playing the exact same style we were better than they were after a 7-0 run the game never really dipped below seven. I may have hit six at one point, but we held them at arm's length for literally the entire game. I don't want to really waste any time on game flow because there was no game flow. There were some takeaways. I think there were some good things. There were some bad things, uh, some things that were certainly a harbinger of what was to come in the game against UC Irvine. But if you don't mind, Blake, I'm going to start with the first the first good thing I feel we saw in the game against Savannah State, and that was Savion Flag. We had, you and I discussed at length 
are concerned about whether Savion could step up and fill the starters minutes that would likely be required of him this season. And I think he did a good job. I think he had a very nice understated 24 and 16, if that's possible to have 24 and six, 24 points, 16 rebounds and to have it be quiet. I know that seems difficult, but that's almost what he did. And he did that by playing through the flow of the offense. The ball never stopped with him. He was, uh, he was good on the ball. His spacing was good off the ball. He took the open three when it was there. He kept the ball moving when it wasn't. He was my first really, really positive player, uh, the positive takeaway I had from this game. I agree. Uh, Savion Flag was outstanding. He looked like the player we kept hoping he would be last year. Now, I want to temper expectations here a little bit. We can't declare this mission accomplished yet because this is Savannah State. This is not the level of competition you're going to see in some other games in the non-conference schedule, and it's certainly not SEC-level competition. You you want to see him do this against the big-time teams. You're not going to get a better test than your next game, which we'll, we'll talk about coming up, but you're not going to get a better test. But you're certainly encouraged by what you saw in this season opener because he he was excellent. He did everything you could ask for a player of his caliber to do in this situation. Yeah, I think that that closes the book on him. He had he had a really good game. He showed us some good minutes as the second forward. He showed us some good minutes at the three whenever we had two big big men in the game. I came away from the season oper, opener thinking he was the furthest thing from a problem for us, that he was he had solidified himself as a solid contributor uh, for the coming season. Now, I want to flip to the other side of things. Let's talk about TJ Starks. TJ Starks was doing very TJ Starks things. He fell in love with the three-pointers, and they didn't love him back. He had nine turnovers in the game. This was this was not his best outing, and at the end of the game, he still had 16 points, and that was mainly based on his ability to attack the rim. He, he's, he just didn't have a good touch from the outside, but all in all, the, the turnovers were the most troubling part, I think, for me in the whole thing. The turnovers, and this is as good a time as any to mention that Admon Gilder and Wendell Mitchell were announced as out of the game in the coming, you know, in the minutes leading up to tip off. Uh, it was almost oddly under wraps, right? The way it was not revealed to us until five, ten minutes before tip off. And what that did is it put TJ Starks in the facilitator role, not because he wants to be, but because he was really the last guy left. He was, uh, I see Gilder and Mitchell mostly splitting the ball handling duties, mostly being asked to carry the role of facilitator to be that pass for guard who looks for other people. That's never been Stark's game. It's never been his game. And he, I'm going to split my displeasure with Starks into two pieces. Piece number one is his actual play on the court. He didn't really know what to do in the context of this new offense as a facilitator. I've Many possessions found him kind of idly standing at the top of the key, haphazardly, just, throw, you know, passing it to the next guy, not really creating, not really trying to find someone in rhythm. That's part one. Part two was his actual demeanor, right? Not his, not his basketball play, but he so clearly did not want to be playing in that role, right? The fact that he technically has the ability to play in that role was secondary. He was quite clearly not pleased that he didn't have the freedom to go take 25 shots. He was being asked to do something that did not fit what he wanted to do. And I think, Blake, this is an interesting comparison. Compare his demeanor in that game and in, in the game against UC Irvine to the demeanor of Admon Gilder when two years ago he played point guard for us for an entire season 
not his primary skill set, right? He can pass, but he is by nature an off-ball scorer and a and a wing defender, right? He's not. He didn't come out of high school as a pass-first point guard, and he he did the job. He kept his head down. He did the job the program asked of him. Perhaps my my biggest displeasure with Starks is that is not that he failed to do it, but more that he just really wasn't interested in trying. So on the other side. I think that one of the really positive things you saw out of this was that your newcomers look ready to contribute immediately. You, we talked about this in the preview. You need these guys to be able to step in and go from day one. Mekawulu and Nebo both looked exactly that part. Mekawulu has a nice offensive game. He works hard on the glass. He's going to be a, a very serviceable big man in SEC play. Nebo, on the other hand, was 10 times better than I expected, both offensively and defensively. He looked incredibly comfortable with the ball in his hands. He's great on the boards. He attacks the rim from inside four feet. If you give him half a chance to dunk, he is going to throw it down in your face. So that's, you know, even with some of the dominating big men we've seen come through the A&M program, guys like Tyler Davis, like Joe Jones, like Brian Davis, there were times where these guys would go just for simple putbacks and simple layups or put it off the glass. Nebo wants none of that. Nebo wants to throw it down hard. And that's awesome to see. I like the strong finishes because I think it sparks the, it sparks an enthusiasm in your team. It, It creates another level of energy for your team. But he was great on the defensive end. We knew he would be. But I was really impressed with his ability to elevate. He's a big guy. I didn't realize how big he is. And he is a load. But he has tremendous athleticism. And he's he can, he can jump out of the gym. So I'm really impressed with him. I think he's going to be great. Uh, Mayhan, he's, he's going to take a little work. I think he needs to get more comfortable. Needs to get his confidence up. I think it was odd that he struggled uh, from three-point land against Savannah State, a team that dares you to shoot from beyond the arc. Uh, Hopefully this isn't a trend for him. I think you see the potential in his game. He has a really silky smooth release. His his shot is just beautiful. He just needs to get more comfortable, I think, and and settle more into the rhythm of the game. You nailed it. It, Good form tends to find the bottom of the net. But it was a little concerning that in a game against a team as shoot-happy as Savannah State, that our best pure shooter went two for 10, but I tend to think this will work its way. Uh, it'll work itself out over, over the course of the season. One other positive note I wanted to work in there real quickly, John Walker, somebody who was seen as a non-contributor to the point where I literally didn't include him in my season preview piece for Good Bull Hunting. You or I didn't mention his name once in our season preview podcast. He got time, and presumably due to the absence of Gilder and Mitchell, but still he got time, and he played pretty well. I mean, he played as he played like somebody who's going to make a real, a real play for that eighth, ninth man rotation minutes. I don't know. I came away feeling pleasantly surprised in that perhaps all will not be lost if we continue to face injury trouble. Yeah, he played really well in that stretch four role. Uh, he's definitely a revelation. I, Like you said, I didn't expect anything from him. He, he redshirted last year, didn't, didn't know much about him, didn't know much about his game. He looks like he's going to be a, a pretty decent piece for this team. He's not a great defender, but he's, he's serviceable. 
He's got a, a, a pretty decent offensive game. Uh, I think he'll be able to add some depth in the front court, which is what this team desperately needs right now. To put a bow on Savannah State, the only two additional points I had were more team-wide. Our general inability to shoot from three, I know we touched on a couple of individual poor shooting performances. It was kind of team-wide, which is something you don't really love to see whenever, to your earlier point, Savannah State is inviting you to play fast and shoot threes. We had a lot of uncontested threes. Uh, A clip under 35% in that context really isn't great. But we also, we really struggled when Savannah State showed some token pressure. There were times where, without much warning, they would press TJ Starks in the backcourt And we just, our response was that of an unprepared team, right? Like we hadn't even considered the possibility that somebody would press us. Like we thought it was a rec league where you can't press beyond half court. And then all of a sudden, these guys are waiting for us on our free throw line. And it almost looked like we just literally didn't didn't know that was a possibility. The end result is multiple times we had people abandon Starks and leave him to to try to dribble through two defenders without any help. And, you know, we said what we said about his game, but those turnovers were not his fault, right? That was the team either not being coached to execute a press break or just not executing a press break when presented with what was really some basic defensive pressure. Yeah, this this is what's troubling about this whole trend. We saw this exact same thing last year. It reeks of a failure to prepare the team adequately uh, because A&M struggled with the press break early in the season and even Midway through the season, they were still struggling to deal with the press break against mediocre level competition. So I find it incredibly troubling that you that that you came into a season opener without the faintest idea of how to handle full court pressure. That that's just not a good look. Well, with that being said, let's talk about UC Irvine. So UC Irvine coming into this game was actually, I think, someone that you and I both tended to overlook. Uh, they're a team that made the NCAA tourney three of the last four years. They're in Ken Palm's top 100. They're a slow a slow play team. They, they adhere a little bit more to the style of play that you saw from A&M last year, that inside-out game. But they they are picked to win the Big West this year, so they're actually a pretty pretty decent little ball club. They are, and Vegas agreed, and we were only five-point favorites at home, and I think it had dropped to four-and-a-half around tip time. So uh, from a third-party perspective, it was clearly supposed to be a close game. But I've got a theory I've been workshopping, Blake, to describe the difference between Savannah State and UC Irvine uh, in the context of, of our transition change, right? The fact that we're now playing much quicker than we used to. So if you think about the the massive shift we made away from post-based basketball towards guard-centric basketball, think of that as a diet, we're changing our diet, right? And we're changing our diet. Whenever we played Savannah State, that's like that time whenever you're on a new diet and you're trying to eat healthy and you go out to eat lunch with that friend that's super health conscious and they're, they say, oh, yeah, I'll take you to this great this great uh, salad place. Oh, and they have like the best kale. And you order lunch with this person and you think, yeah, they're, they're, they're driving the way I'm driving. This diet's going to be good, right? I can do this. I can handle anything. That was Savannah State because they heard that we wanted to play fast. They said, hey, let's play even faster. And we thought, man, everything's going to be this easy. This switch to fast place pay is going to be awesome. UC Irvine is a different story, right? That's that friend that hears you're on a diet and says, let's go to a burger place. And hey, hey, man, I know you're trying to eat healthy. So there's a grilled chicken. They have, they have great grilled chicken. So you'll be good. Let's just go. Let, let's check it out. And you get there and you look at the menu 
and there's a grilled chicken entree that's like one line item in the bottom right corner of the menu, and there's 25 burger options and 10 fry options, that's when your diet's tested, right? It's not tested when you go to the health place with the health friend. It's tested when you're presented with things that might actually make you fail. That's what UC Irvine was to us. They didn't want to play fast. They wanted to actively get us away from what we were trying to do. Come to find out they were pretty decent at it. Come to find out also, Blake, it's not that easy to play fast when your opposition doesn't want you to play fast. One of the things that you saw out of this game that really impacted A&M negatively was UC Irvine's 2-3 zone. I don't know why, but A&M didn't appear to know how to get a team out of, out of a zone. There were several. There are several basic ways that you attack a team running a two-three. You attack the soft spots. You set the back pit. Throw the skip pass. You overload one side. You utilize the high post. You get a guy in the short corner, or you simply shoot your way out of it. Right? You you just knock down shots from the outside so that they have to extend out and start guarding you man to man. The Aggie strategy, it seemed like, was to simply stand on the perimeter, rotate the ball around a couple times and then make a feeble three-point attempt from 27 feet. I didn't count. I went back and watched the game. I didn't count a single skip pass across the zone an entire game. They leveraged the, the high post a few times successfully, but that was really the only other strategy that they employed other than standing around on the outside. And when I say standing around, I mean standing around. There was no movement, no motion, nothing. It was just a, an idle attempt at running an offense where everybody just kind of stood around and looked at each other and passed it back and forth. I, I, this was, it was bizarre considering how much we talked about the pace is going to change this year. It has to change. Billy Kennedy himself said we are going to play an up-tempo game, and they did nothing to play an up-tempo game against a 2-3 zone. UC Irvine won the battle of pace decisively which that battle will take place anytime two teams are trying to do different things. And they came out, they controlled the pace, they got us out of what we wanted to do. Kudos to them, they did a good job. And we never strung together two made threes. We never did it. Uh, it we're now two games deep, Blake. I still think we're operating at about a 26%, 27% from three after two games. But we're Actually, I have the stat on this. We are currently 14 for 66 from three. For a staggering 21%. And when I say staggering, I mean staggeringly bad. Yeah, we're going to see zones until that changes. That's that's just that's the reality of the situation. If, if we're running sets trying to get quick shots and if we're trying to play fast, the easiest way to slow someone down is to play a zone because it just it demands patience. And if we're not hitting shots, we're just going to keep seeing more of this. And now to your point, there are some structural things you can do to get better looks. But my fear, and we're only two games in, and I'm trying to tap the brakes here, my fear is that we don't have the shooters to play a style that demands good outside shooting. And if that truly is the case, Blake, I, I don't know what we do. What what do you do if you don't have the horses to run the style you're trying to run? I, I really don't know what, what we would do at that point. But let's let's talk about some of the other the other things we saw coming down the stretch. I want to flip it to the positive briefly because I thought we did learn some positive things in that last six minutes. The interesting thing about, it's always one of the cool parts of the season is to see the first time your team comes down the stretch in a tight game because that's when you really learn where the ball is going to go in, in, in tight spots, right? And you learn a lot about the individual players when they have the ball in a big possession. 
And much as we talked about for game one, I thought Mekawulu and Nebo really showed themselves well late in the game. Mekawulu, he showed himself as a legitimate late-game option. If he has his man sealed, if he's one-on-one in the post, that is a good offensive possession if you can get the ball to him with 90 seconds remaining. I thought he put himself at that level. And I thought Nebo, I thought he played extraordinarily well coming down the stretch. He finished really well. He played very good defense. He rebounded well. This is now the point, Blake, where we start to transition back to some of the mistakes we saw because Josh Nebo, defensive player extraordinaire, clearly our best rim protector, not on the court and the biggest defensive possession on the game of the game. The that was yeah that was so bizarre. So that bizarre. Was so bizarre. The the possession where Savannah or where uh, UC Irvine you know, made about a fifteen foot twelve to fifteen footer to go up by one with five or six seconds remaining. I guess. Are you ready? Can we launch into the part of the pod where we can we walk through for the listeners just how poor this last 90 seconds was from an A&M perspective? Because it was truly shocking. So it, it gave the Kennedy detractors all the ammunition they would need because it was it was a very poorly managed last 90 seconds by our head coach. We hoarded timeouts. I don't really know why, but as the lead dwindled from six to three to one, at no point did we use one of our three timeouts. We ended the game with three timeouts, Blake. I don't know what the translation rate is of timeouts to points, but it's not one. Whatever it's worth, it's not worth one point because we still lost by one. And I'm sure those timeouts kept us warm in the locker room. But we, we hoarded three timeouts and we just carried just carried them to the parking lot for no reason. Have we checked Kennedy's contract to see if maybe he gets some type of stipend that he gets paid at the end of the season for all the timeouts not taken? Maybe that's what it factors into. I don't know. That would make as much sense as what he actually did, which is which was to just watch a lead evaporate over the latter portion of the second half without doing the one thing you can do as a head coach to control the situation, which is to call a timeout. We're bringing the ball up the court with 40 to 45 seconds remaining. To me, that's an automatic two-for-one situation. The math states that with a 30-second shot clock, if you're bringing the ball up with 40 to 45 seconds remaining – if you can get a good shot in six to eight seconds, which is, I don't know, the one thing we've been preaching that we want to do all, all off season, If you can do that, the opposition brings the ball in with 35 to 37 seconds remaining and a 30-second shot clock, which guarantees that you get two possessions to your opponent's one, which in a position you have, you have the ball up one with 40-plus seconds left. That's something that's an automatic for a coach. That's an automatic that you want to put your – an automatic situation that you want to put yourself into. We chose to dribble the shot clock out and put up a not great shot with about 20 seconds remaining, missed it, at which point a timeout was called by the opposition. And so now, Blake, I'm going to put you in the scenario that really deeply bothered me, which is that Billy Kennedy has his team around him. He is up one, 20 seconds remaining. As we discussed during this timeout, he opts to remove Josh Nebo from the lineup for reasons that neither of us can comprehend. But more importantly, there was no discussion during this timeout of what was going to happen after UC Irvine took a shot. Maybe we were just that certain they were going to string the game out and put up a shot with you know 0.5 seconds remaining to where the, the next action didn't matter. The way it actually played out is UC Irvine gets a good look with about, they put it up with about eight seconds left. It drops with about six seconds remaining, we have the ball underneath. 6.2. 6.2. We're underneath the basket at our own baseline. And I'm telling you, it is crystal clear to any viewer, anyone in the stadium, anyone watching on TV, that our five players do not know what to do. That the 
the next action after a UC Irvine made basket was not discussed. Inexcusable, criminal coaching mistakes. Basic, basic, basic stuff. In my piddly seventh grade rec league team that I coached, I knew to do that. In that scenario, you walk through the contingency. If they miss it, find a guard. If they make it, we're either gunning and we're going without a timeout or I'm calling a timeout immediately. Whatever, whatever's happening, you make it crystal clear to your team, no matter what happens, this is our action, right? Our five guys didn't know what to do. So in this, so in this context, Blake, no one knows what to do. No one's taking any action. Starks inbounds the ball to Flag, who, like everybody else, hasn't been told what to do. He, instead of gunning, because we are now on a live clock and we're down one, kind of sheepishly hands it back to Starks once he steps in bounds. And now Starks is running, but no cohesive action is occurring. There is no motion. There's no nobody setting screens. Uh, the end result is a Starks pull-up three from... 28 feet that hits the rim and, and doesn't go and the game's over. And let me ask you, Blake, which of these two things is more likely? Did all five players forget the instructions they were delivered or was the team not instructed as to what they needed to do? Where was UC Irvine to make a basket with time remaining? No instructions were clearly given. And the problem with that was once the ball is inbounded, and once Savion Flag turns around and hands the ball back to Starks when he steps in bounds, something in your brain should register. This isn't this isn't going according to plan. Yeah, we gotta go. I need to call. I need to call a timeout so that we can organize this situation a little bit better. You still had four seconds on the clock. It's not great, but it's still somewhat salvageable. Rather than having Steve, rather than having TJ pushing the ball down the floor and heaving up a 30-foot shot that clangs harmlessly off the rim. I don't understand how there was a complete and utter lack of preparation for in the moment and then the the inability to adapt on the fly when you realized there is no plan. So that's a great point, Blake, and, and one I should have made because I laid it all at the feet of the coach. It's really not that difficult in that scenario to race across half court and call a timeout yourself. And that was on the table. I think that might have been where we missed Gilder. He would have had the presence of mind to do that. But it's also something that it's not that difficult of a concept. I don't think you have to be a returning fourth-year senior to know that our end-of-game play is going disastrously. And if I cross half court and call a timeout, we can maybe do something else. So it was. It was column A and column B. But it was very, very frustrating to 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 watch a team play such a critical possession with what was quite clearly no instruction at the top. I agree. The one thing I think there was a little bit of a bright spot. We didn't touch on this in the, uh, the Savannah state game. I didn't get a good feel out of Isaiah JC in that game. He, he had really bad body language. He had several turnovers. He just he just didn't look comfortable on the floor, and it really harkened back to what we saw last year, which was this is a guy that, that that Kennedy really couldn't trust. He didn't put him out there in critical situations. You know, uh, I think you saw a much more improved version of Isaiah JC against UC Irvine. He looked much more comfortable with the ball. He had some nice dunks, made some nice plays, 
but I think it's incredibly telling that Kennedy still doesn't feel like he can trust him because JC had a great first half. He never got off the bench in the second. I think that's where we are with him. And I think as flag continues to develop, I think, I think if, if flag continues to give us good minutes at the four, it is not going to bode well for JC's time. I'm, I think that's just the reality of the situation. I think you're probably right there. Well, I'm, I'm quickly uh, running out of uh, of hot takes. The uh, the aggregate effect of all the things we have discussed has worn me out. Uh, should we flip it and, and start talking about next week's battle at Gonzaga? We have what is truly a really cool opportunity, if people can look past the fact that we're going to be huge underdogs, to get to go to Spokane, to get to play in this gym is a really cool thing. The fact that we locked down a home-and-home home is a really cool thing. Uh, any quick thoughts from you on this game before we launch into our conversation with, with Peter from Gonzaga's SB Nation site? This is going to be a really exciting game just to witness really good basketball in a really cool little gym. Uh, Spokane is a, is a cool town. Um, they, love, they love their Zags up there, really passionate fan base. Students live and die with this team. This is their, you know, this is their sports outlet. So uh, I think you're going to see a really great atmosphere. I'm excited. I'm excited to see a game against a, a team that has been probably one of the most exceptional basketball programs in the country for the last two decades to do what they've done with the, the resources that they have or the lack of resources in some regards. I mean, their gym seats roughly six, 7,000 people, you know, this isn't a big money program, but this is a, a, a team that wins like it is. So I think this is going to be a lot of fun just to see a really good quality basketball team with a lot of talent. And I'm hoping that the Ags will rise to the occasion in this one. What I'm hoping is that we can at least head up there with a full chamber. I'm hoping we can clear our injury concerns and really get to see this team with our full complement of players. To be honest, Blake, it's one of the only things I'm holding on to after this opening week is that Maybe, just maybe, adding those two guys back will fix all the things that ail us. So hopefully we get to see that. Time will tell. I haven't heard definitively either way. Uh, But with that being said, let's launch into this conversation with Peter from Gonzaga's SB Nation site. Well, now we'd like to welcome Peter Woodburn from the Slipper Still Fits, the Gonzaga SB Nation site. You can find that at slipperstillfits.com. Uh, Peter, welcome to Aggie Hoops Weekly. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks again, Peter. We do appreciate you joining us. Uh, a, a quick perusal of your schedule has shown that you have utterly destroyed the first two opponents on your schedule, a sentiment we do not share, unfortunately. Uh, see. I'm curious, can you enlighten us as to what you've been able to learn in the opening two performances and how you feel relative to uh, your preseason expectations? Yeah, it's it's been an interesting um, start to the year because uh, Zags, they opened uh, preseason AP number three. It's the highest in school history. There's all the talk of Final Fours and all, all this going on. And, and so uh, they had a couple of um, nice little uh rather cupcake teams, Idaho State um, was the opener, and um, they scored 120 points, which is the fifth highest total um, in school history, and they just, the offense um, had a little bit of cobwebs to shake off, and then once they got going, um, Idaho State couldn't keep up, and then uh, 
just uh, over the weekend, they played Texas Southern um, and had another uh, stellar showing in that game as well. And so I think offensively, um, what we've been what we've been able to take away from it is that the new pieces that they added in to the team this year they really seem to be fitting pretty seamlessly. Um, it's also kind of hard to tell though because uh, both neither um, I mean Texas Southern was in the NCAA tournament last year. I think they play in the the SWAC conference, whatever that stands for. Um, and Idaho State is not really that good, so it's kind of hard to really gauge um, how well the team. Is but I mean the offense was definitely rolling uh, really really good way. So Peter, who are the big contributors this year for for the Zags? Um, so the big ones are uh, one of the names that'll a lot of people across the nation are, are going to be hearing more and more popping up is Rui Hachimura. Uh, he's a Japanese born player. He's and he very well could have gone into the NBA draft last year just based off potential. Um, he only played about twenty minutes a game last year. Uh, and he, he decided to kind of, they've always had a plan with him that it was really going to be kind of a three-year plan uh, to sort of fully unlock um, his abilities. And so this year, just through the first two games, he's been amazing. He dropped 33 points um, in the opening, in the season opening game against Idaho State, shooting 13 from 18 from the field. Um, he's averaging 25 points through two games. Um, so he's really probably the most exciting, um, most exciting, exciting Gonzaga player that the team has had in quite a while um, just as far as like pure athleticism and just he's a joy to watch um, the other big player uh, that people should know about but won't know about at the moment um, because of an injury is uh, Killian Tilly and he's a junior forward from France and he also very well was he was kind of thinking about the draft last year but he had to pull out because of an injury um, in the NCAA tournament that kicked him out of the game of Florida State uh, when Gonzaga lost last year, and he uh, got a stress fracture in his ankle and is missing the first two months, uh, roughly, I think the first eight weeks of the season. So those are really the two big, uh, kind of the biggest uh, players as far as national profile. And then it really rounds out with a couple of other players. Um, the senior point guard, Josh Perkins, he um, has been on the team seemingly forever. Um, he's a great three-point shooter. He tends to make some pretty boneheaded turnovers every now and then, but um, he's really the kind of the heart and soul of the backcourt. And then Zach Norvell Jr., um, sophomore guard out of Chicago, lit it up in the NCAA tournament last year and is really looking to take a step forward as kind of the major offensive focal point of the um, the backcourt so that's really those are really the four big players i mean i could go on about everyone but those are the ones that whose names will probably pop up most throughout the year and you mentioned that you've lost uh, the big man tilly for for we'll call it the majority or if not all of the non-conference slate how was your style developed in his absence and what would you tag as the strengths and weaknesses of of the squad as presently constructed heading into the a&m game yeah so you don't Killian Tilly losing a player of his caliber. I mean, you know, any team when they lose one of their starting members of the rotation, it's going to be really hard. And a lot of times, especially especially at Ford, uh, Tilly was a six ten Ford, um, but he is an incredible, um, incredibly athletic and incredibly quick. So he was great on um, just weak side defending. A uh, pretty could hold his own blocking and rebounding, but where he really brought a lot of um, skill and focus on the offensive end was his ability to hit the three and to really stretch the floor out. 
Um, and so that's what Gonzaga lost. They don't, they're the rest of their starting, or their starting front court, um, Brandon Clark, who's a transfer from San Jose state is just kind of a Duncan rebound sort of guy. He's great, but doesn't, isn't very comfortable really shooting, you know, beyond like 15 feet and really Hachimura, the one aspect of his game that he really hasn't been able to completely dial in is um, a three-point threat at all. He's not very consistent there, whereas Tilly really was. And so um, the Zags, I think, had to have had to switch to kind of a more uh, sort of classic, um, more just kind of classic old-school centers instead of really kind of that positionless basketball that you sort of see in the NBA. The Zags now are really pretty clearly defined with their sort of front court and their back court. Um, and that's going to be, that's the biggest change. And then when Tilly gets back, he really gives a lot of ability for people to move around in different positions and space the floor a little bit better. So this is a matchup that I'm really looking forward to as, as a, as a junior high student, I fell in love with that 98, 99 team. Uh, we're uh-huh. talking, Matt Santangelo and that crew, uh, which was really kind of my first foray into rooting for a Cinderella team in the NCAA tournament. So uh, Gonzaga has a special place in my heart from that regard. Uh, I grew up as an A&M fan, which was at the time basketball purgatory. So, uh, <laughs> so this is this is something that's exciting to get to see one of those teams that 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 you know you kind of root for on the periphery. Um, mm-hmm. That being said. You guys have had 20 years of sustained excellence under Mark Few, and you know it looks like there's no signs of slowing down. So overall, I know this is a big leap forward for you guys having that number three national ranking. You know what is the general sentiment of the fan base? Is it is it is there still that eternal optimism? Is there still that that excitement? Does it does it ever become kind of a jaded fan base where you think, well, we should have. You know, oh, it was just another Sweet 16. We should have made the Final Four, that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I think that um, that, that was a lot of the fan base uh, prior to two years ago. Um, and so two years ago in 2017, uh, when they finally, when they made their first Final Four in school history, you know, made the national championship game and inevitably, or in, not inevitably, um, eventually lost to University of North Carolina. And that was really a big turning point, I think, for a lot of the fan base because prior to, they had had some some pretty decent seeds. Um, Adam Morrison losing, and you know everyone remembers him crying to UCLA, and the Zags were, I think, a three seed in that game, and and they've had and they've had they've taken their lumps in the NCAA tournament, but just like every other single team out there, you run, you know, they got their number one seed and. 2013 and they lost to Wichita State as Wichita State kind of burst onto the scene and so really kind of making the final four in the national championship I think is really in a weird way sort of tempered the fan base's expectations I think where they at least kind of now realize that you know things for to make it that far to make it into the final four the title you have to have a lot of things go right it doesn't just work to be a good team there's just as much involved as and luck and seeding and everything else like that I think what's going to be interesting this year is that this is the first year that the Zags have really arrived with the level of focus especially nationally um, a lot virtually every site out there that was doing preseason final four picks Gonzaga 
is getting tossed in there. And that's kind of, that's a new thing. So I think it's going to be an interesting year um, for the fan base. You know, they, the, the Zags play in the WCC. It's not very good. Um, their non-conference slate is brutal. Um, but there's going to be people who probably still think that they should go completely undefeated. Um, I'm not one of those people. I have a little, little realistic um, expectations for them, but well, then you must not be in the internet content creation business. I thought it was supposed to be hard lines all the time. <laughs> so, Peter, I want to pull on that thread a little further. You talked about the non-conference slate, and I have something interesting here. It's the uh, the AP release associated with Tilly's injury, mm-hmm. and it talk it talks about how he's expected to miss nearly of all of Gonzaga's non-conference schedule that includes games against Washington, North Carolina, Tennessee, Creighton, and the Maui Invitational. So we don't even make the cut. We're not even in the <laughs> we're, we're not even in the article explaining the, the context of his loss. And I want to kind of twist that and ask you, what's the perception on campus of this game? I imagine you guys have become a college basketball blue blood in the last twenty years. You've become a destination school, a, a hot ticket, a really good home and home. Blake and I were both very pleased when we landed this. What's the perception of A and M coming to campus relative to some of the some of those other non conference games? I, I think it, it's it's a little interesting um, because I think a lot of people generally will always get excited for any of the um, any of the big home and homes when you can get a school from one of the Power Five conferences to come to Spokane um, to kind of exchange that favor. It's I think it's a really cool thing. You don't see you're seeing it a little bit more, but. Um, I think that the, the the fan base and especially the students will always get excited when the bigger schools um, arrive on campus and just kind of see what it's like in our little tiny, so to speak, 6,000-person arena. Um, as for Texas A&M in general, I think, I think it's kind of the same thing. You know, you I, I wouldn't expect the average um, Texas A&M fan to know that much about Gonzaga, and I do not expect the average Gonzaga fan to know that much about Texas A&M. So I think it's going to be really... I think people are really excited still, though, to see um, a school from a school from a big a big conference really kind of take the gamble um, and do the home and home. I think see a lot more of these contests just happening on neutral courts and everything, and it really kind of takes away from the experience, especially as a student. When you're for a student at Gonzaga, um, unless you're you know, it's really hard to get tickets once you once you graduate, and so it'll, it's a really cool experience, I think, for a lot of the kids, uh, and then. You know, kids from Texas on campus or something. I'm sure it'll be extra special for them as well. And to that point, Peter, we had a we had a, a series with Arizona recently, but instead of doing it at the two campuses, they did it in Houston and in uh, Phoenix. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's one of those things where just go the extra fifty miles in each direction, right, and put it on campus. So that's we were really pleased that that's what they chose to do for this one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Me too. All right. Well, Peter. Uh, it was great talking to you. Anything you want to jump in and promote for the Slipper Still Fits? Yeah, um, just you know, come stop by, visit slipperstillfits.com. Tell me in all the ways that I'm wrong about Texas A&M when I'm going to try and write about it myself later this week. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. at It's at Slipper Still Fit because Slipper Still Fits was already taken. Um, so feel free to tweet at me depending on how my day is going. You'll get a response laced with a certain degree of sarcasm. Um, <laughs> and thanks for having me on. Thank you, Peter. We appreciate it. Thanks again to Peter Woodburn for coming on and joining us this week. 
We're looking forward to the game against Gonzaga in Spokane. David, any final thoughts before we go? I hope we make a good account of ourselves. I think I think that's my final thought. It's going to be a game that, you know, our first two games were on Watch ESPN. This one's going to get some national TV run. It's a 10:30 tip, so the gambling addicts and college foot, college basketball fiends among us who who can't go to sleep, uh, they're going to be tuning in. I think this is a game of at least some national interest to have a Power 5 school taking a trip to the extreme northwest, and I hope we make a good account of ourselves. I think if we go on this stage and lay an egg, and I'm telling you, Blake, if we submit the kind of performance we submitted against UC Irvine, we will get beat by 30. That is a, that's one of the possible outcomes. So I just want us to go make a good account of ourselves. As I discussed before the interview, I hope we can do that with a full complement of players. Even if we don't have a full complement of players, I just want to see us really give this thing a go and, and hopefully at least have a competitive outing. I agree 100%. This is... This is not a game that you should roll into expecting to win. If if any of you fans out there expect the Aggies to pull this one out, I would I would su- submit yourselves to some type of psychological exam because this is not a game that you this is not a game that you you go into expecting for a, a positive result other than, you know, a good showing. I think that this is a good early season test that will give us an indication of what this team can do over the rest of the season. I think it, by that I mean to say that if you come in and you're competitive, you keep it close, you give Gonzaga a decent run, okay, we, there's this, this thing has potential to do something this year. And it's not just Gonzaga. I do want to point out that our next three games are pretty difficult i think it's fair to assume we're not going to be favored in any of the three because we actually don't come home from gonzaga we continue even further into the northwest and we play two games in vancouver in a tournament over thanksgiving we play against minnesota and washington Uh, minnesota i think is kind of a fledgling big 10 team washington has snuck into the top 25 in some polls so it's time for us to turn it around Uh, our next three games are against very very real opposition it's, I can say with pretty clear certainty that all three of these teams are better than UC Irvine, a team we just lost to at home. So we've got to turn it around, Blake, or we could we could be talking to each other uh, with a one and four start, which obviously would kill any momentum we were hoping to gather from, from the A&M neutral uh, as football season's winding down. So that's how I'll close it. I hope I hope we find whatever it is we're hoping to become because the, whatever we saw in the first two games, that ain't it. No, it's not. So let's hope for a good showing against Gonzaga and then uh, look forward to two big games in Vancouver. And I believe we'll talk next after those two Vancouver games, right? Next episode coming after that tournament? That's correct. All right. Well, three games from now, we'll catch up. And Lord willing, we got to win somewhere in there. You know, we'll see. (laughs) 